An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our guest, Sandra Peters. If you're an investor or just interested in a smooth functioning economy, Sandy is an unsung hero. She heads the CFA Institute's advocacy and regulatory affairs efforts globally related to the information needs of investors for investment decision-making. This includes corporate disclosures, financial reporting, accounting, ESG sustainability disclosures, and how the information is assured and audited. She also looks at how technology creates new forms of information and how that information is integrated into the capital markets. Sandy began her career at a big four accounting firm, KPMG, then went to MetLife where she was the corporate controller. So she is the perfect background to be the watchdog over information for one of the most influential professional investor organizations in the world, having worked as an investor, a corporate preparer, and an auditor. And as someone who has sat next to our various committees, I can vouch that she's just plain smart. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you. I like that. <laughs> I'm glad. So what's your origin story? I mean, little kids don't grow up sitting in Nebraska thinking that they want to become experts in financial reporting. Was there something about how you grew up that sent you in this direction, like we were math ways in kindergarten? Or was there something later that started you down the path? You know, I don't think I was a math was in kindergarten. I came to, when we, when I grew up in my, I came, we moved from Council Bluffs to Omaha. They put me in the slower third grade. And when I finished sixth grade math and third grade, because we had all this individualized stuff, they moved me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I did like, I did like math. Um, I didn't like economics as I grew up. Um, but I think my interest in accounting began when I took, uh, I took the first two semesters of accounting in high school. And Mrs. Winslow, my accounting teacher, had some new staffers come and talk to our class. And I said, I want to I want to be one of them and I want to be a partner. So I decided when I was a senior in high school that I wanted to be a partner at one of the firms. So you got brainwashed early. Exactly. It worked. So, you know, when there's this conversation, I think we were the um, PCOB SEIG and they were talking about meeting or talking to high schoolers and, you know, to get people into the accounting profession today, it really resonates with me because it worked. Absolutely. So since you have mentioned the PCOB, which is the United States Public Accounting Regulator, and since we both serve on an advisory committee, we will give the standard disclosure that nothing we say reflects the opinions of the PCOB, its board members, the advisory committees, or anyone other than us, and sometimes not even that. Um, <laughs> but that is an emerging issues group and they're dealing with standard setting. And there is a lot going on. I mean, legislative changes, regulatory changes, judicial changes, red state, blue state um, things. So before we get into what's changing today, let's get some context. 
do you and the CFA Institute have a core philosophy about information in the capital markets? We actually do. I think it, I think that's an excellent place to start because if you look at, there's two books, CFA, the CFA program, The Gold Standard, and then there's a book that was written in the late 90s, From Practice to Profession. And the first chapters of both are about information for investment decision-making, right? It's the foundation. It's the principles. It is the first principles, right? We even, as an organization, forget that our history is in the Securities Acts of 1933 and 1934. It is that proliferation of information. Um, information, I like to say, is the grease that makes the engine of the capital markets work effectively. And so our, our, our philosophy has always been what's, what gets disclosed gets measured and monitored, right? And so we want information that we believe is value relevant for investment decision making. And CFA Institute in particular has been on the forefront of some pretty controversial changes in, in the financial reporting um, ecosystem. So we wanted pensions on the balance sheet. We wanted stock-based compensation fair valued. We wanted fair value of financial instruments. Um, we wanted fair value of financial instruments even more after the financial crisis. And in 2013, we wrote a paper, financial, financial reporting, disclosures, investor perspectives on transparency, trust, and volume, because we were at the time hearing about the fact that investors were overloaded with information. And this was, a lot of this was coming from you know, some of the accounting firms, actually. And we said, wait, but there's no mention of technology in here. And are you thinking about how investors actually consume this information? I can remember um, as a member of the IFRS Interpretations Committee, I was in London in January timeframe and Jamie Dimon was speaking at Davos and I was getting ready to go to the committee and he was talking about how long the financial statement or the annual reports are. And I'm like, but we don't consume them that way. We do, but we don't, right? A lot of it is from data providers. And so, and we have technology even more so. I mean, this is 10 years later, right? We think about technology and skills and and how that's going to change this information ecosystem. But still, it's very, very, very important, right? And it's very important, I should say, when I think of the long term, people are talking about AI and generative AI. And that's great. But I'm also worried about the fact that they met that might quell disclosures because companies know it can be assumed, can, consumed much more efficiently. I'm worried about that. I think that we need to, it, it, it may need even more pushing. We're using all this natural language processing and alternative data and the like to look at the mosaic of what's out there. But what you really want is what's not out there. And you don't want to squelch what's there by the fact that people are concerned about how easily and readily it can be consumed. Yeah, I always say that that investors are data junkies. I've never they heard are. an investor say we have too much information. I've only heard issuers or regulators or accountants who get paid by issuers say um, investors want everything and uh, this is burdensome. But I've never heard an investor say we have too much information. But then let me ask you, um, really going back to basics. Is part of the ongoing need to, for the CFA Institute to ask for all those things on the financial statements for the new ISSB to, to come up with sustainable disclosures, just a problem with our current accounting system? I mean, it was developed half a millennium ago. 
the, the person who developed it was a Franciscan friar, brother Luca Peccioli, and he was brilliant. I mean, he taught Leonardo da Vinci perspective, right? The guy, he wrote a book about mathematics. He was brilliant. But the world he was describing was very different. It was, he was trying to describe buy-sell transactions, like selling a vegetable on a floating market on the Arno River and getting cash. Everything in Brother Luca's world was tangible. The externalities didn't amount for much, so they didn't matter. Um, and you compare that to, the, to today's world where the intangibles, brand, bits of code, network, data, data are really what drives value. Um, less than 20% of the value of the S&P 500 companies are reflected in their financial statements, which to me is an ipso facto condemnation or critique of the accounting system. And so at some level, isn't, I'm going to throw the CFA Institute in there. What the standard centers and the CFA Institute and FASB and ISSB and all of us are doing, band-aids. We just don't have an accounting system that reflects how value and risk are really created in today's economy. And if so, is there anything we can do about it other than tinker into our band-aids? It's a good question. And we basically ask that question. And actually, in the strategy consultation document that we did to the FASB, I always forget if it was the fall of 2021 or the fall of 2022. You know, that whole COVID thing, it's like the time warp. I think it was the fall of 2021. And in it, we put several things that we believed that the FASB needed to consider that were longer term bigger picture trends. And that was ESG, that was technology, that was intangibles. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head. And I was really pleased when um, Bob Hurst, who was the former chair of the FASB and, and somebody who I had great respect for because he really had a good strategic perspective about what the future should look like and how not to be a Band-Aid, right? He pushed convergence, he pushed fair value. He was truly, um, you know, I had a vision of what things should look like. So that's a long um, way of saying, yes, we think that, you know, this is an accounting model. The accounting model that we're using is one that was built for a manufacturing economy. So a good example of that is that, um, so the recent banking crisis that we sort of um, jumped on and had a lot of commentary on, it really reflects the fact that financial statements for banks are its fair value overlaid on an accounting model that's built for tangible assets that don't move quickly, right? And so what you have is you don't have, you have fair value disclosures in the footnote. You have a balance sheet that pretends like one estimate is okay and it doesn't connect how the assets and liabilities work together. And you have interest rate risk, which is outside of the financial statements, which was de developed in a different era, right? I, I think the interest rate risk disclosures, market risk disclosures came in the late 90s, if memory serves me correctly. So none of this fits together, right? So in the context of financial services, how these assets and liabilities behave is really confusing. I was actually reading somebody's commentary on Fed, um, when I, I think it was the vice chair bar made something about changes to capital requirements. And I thought exactly what you were saying. This was yesterday or the day before. These are just incremental changes. We're not thinking about how this 
all works together and how these assets and liabilities behave um, together. So it's true in financial services. It's true in technology. It's true in even some of the manufacturing businesses, right? Because of the fact that they now have other intangibles, if you will, right? I was always a believer that GE's sale of all of its insurance and other asset businesses so that you got down to seeing that it was it in, in terms of the manufacturing that it actually does, it reflected those results quite nicely, right? Because you could see that some of those businesses weren't profitable under that model. But when you had overlaid on top of it all of the financial services and insurance, um, there was an ability to sort of it was it was it was tougher to um, disentangle and see what was really going on. So to me, and I was a partner in one of GE's subs at the, when I was at KPMG, I always felt like that was a really good illustration of how taking away some of these other things and put you back to a purely uh, manufacturing context showed that the model works for that, but it doesn't necessarily work for everything else. So let me ask you about a corollary to that. A lot of people are complaining about the pace of regulatory change, that the SEC is, you know, putting out environmental disclosures and looking at human capital disclosures and seems to come up with a new standard every month. The accounting oversight board in the U.S. or in the EU, the new um, International Sustainable Standards Board is coming up with new regulation. EU itself comes up with new regulation. And most people say it is either an overreach or a reflection of the fact, depending on their political belief, either an overreach or a catch up effect mm-hmm. of the last four years, or ESG is driving stuff. People have come to realize that externalities matter. But those are, in effect, to use the popular word of the last uh, year, transitory. Um, mm-hmm. And what we seem to be saying is maybe they're just reflecting an increased pace of misalignment between our current accounting system and the real economy, which is driven by intangibles and finance and in addition to manufacturing and, and other things where it does work. And and if that is the case, then this then the need for band-aids increases over time as mm-hmm. the economy keeps changing. So what do you think is driving the pace of regulatory change? Is, is it these specific issues like wanting to have climate disclosure, or is it something more fundamental in a misalignment between our underlying disclosure? which is financial statements and the real economy. I think it's a lot of those things. I think that, you know, each one of the standard setters has a different sort of scenario of what's happened over like at least the last 10 years, right? So you've had the PCAOB, which has been relatively, it was relatively active after the financial crisis. They didn't get everything they wanted. And then over the last five years, or the, the, the four of the preceding five years, not much happened, right, under under the previous uh, stewardship of the PCAOB or governance or board governance of the of the PCAOB. So they are trying to make up and do a lot of things all at once, right? Um, and there does, 
um, there does need to be some things associated, done associated with that. And all of these at the same time, like I was just talking with someone about NOCLAR and fraud. NOCLAR is non-compliance with laws and regulations and fraud is, as it says, fraud. So the PCAOB has a series of things it's in catch-up mode on. The FASB really hasn't had, you know, over the prior four years, much activity. Most of the things have been incremental standard setting. And now they're moving into a mode of what they refer to as achievable standard setting. So they're doing some, they're reducing the scope of some of the projects to get some things um, passed. But are these the most important things is really the question. And then you have the whole effort as it relates to um, sustainability. And me personally, I believe that some of the disclosures related to sustainability are a reflection that there are things missing from financial statements. We have an intangible survey that I did a while ago. We're finally going to come out with a paper, but the members didn't necessarily see it that way. But I think that may change over time. So I think each one of them has a little bit of a, a, a different situation going on, right? But I do think it's a combination of were we keeping up as things were changing in the economy? Were the politics keeping up with how things were changing? And um, do we have an accounting model that we sort of need to revisit? So I completely agree that I think that some of these are band-aids and it's really hard for me as somebody who has to respond to these things and pick and choose because so much is going on about what I spend my time on, right? And I, I feel like I have to comment on things so that we don't so that we don't let something slide backwards, but are we moving forward, right? For me, one of the big issues on sustainability is I don't see that the SEC, the ISSB, or the FRAG ESERS um, have a set of standards that are going to disclose the financial effects consistently. So if I want to know value-relevant information, I need to know what the potential future financial effects are or the current period financial effects. But none of those disclosures are necessarily the same. And I need feel like I need to spend my time working on saying, hey, these don't these are all hang together, but there's all these other things to take care of in, in the band-aids, if you will, that take time away from the broader, um, bigger conceptual things that we need to be working on. You mentioned the ISSB and bigger conceptual things. So let me ask you a big conceptual question about the ISSB. They recently announced the ISSB, for those listening, is the new International Sustainability Standards Board formed by the International Financial Reporting Standards Board, which basically governs accounting in most jurisdictions other in the United States. And they put out two sustainability standards recently, one on disclosure of sustainability-related risks and the other specifically on climate-related disclosure. But, and it is a big but, some people, particularly in the sustainability community, are criticizing the ISSB for focusing on traditional materiality, or as the European calls it, single materiality. What are the risks that climate or other issues pose to the company, not what risks the company poses to the world, or if you're a diversified investor to the rest of your portfolio? One vocal critic even calls the ISSB, and I quote, sociopath. So here's Bill Bowie's argument. He cites the ISSB's own words. Quote, when an entity's activities result in adverse external impacts on, for example, local communities, 
it could be subjected to stricter governmental regulation and consequences of regulational reputational effects. For example, negative effects on the entity's brands and hiring. And he says that that is narcissistic and sociopathic in that what the ISSB is saying is that if a company harms a community, the ISSB asks how the company might be harmed by harming the community without considering the company's obligations to fix it in the community. What's your debate view on the debate as to whether standards ought to include what the EU calls double materiality or inside-out material, the impacts of a company on society and on the economy? And is it different if you think about it from an enterprise value company-based disclosure versus the informational needs of a diversified investor who made all in effect, slices of the whole economy. So here's how we here's how we've um, framed our advocacy efforts around this, and that goes this goes back to I don't know 2020 is I think the first time we sort of wrote it down. We have an ESG policy statement, but in the context of of disclosures, what we've said is this is a complicated question, and each one of these standard setters are setting standards for inclusion of information in different contexts. So the SEC is setting it in the context of their investor protection mandate, right? And the ISSB is setting standards and they're going to create an investor focus. But those could be, those standards could be used in many different places. They could be used in the annual report. They could be used in sustainability reports. So we focused one on sort of who's the audience for the information? What's the objective of the information? And then saying, okay, what do, as, as CFA Institute, our members have a fiduciary duty to their clients, right? And so that fiduciary duty means helping them understand value-relevant information. And if they want to invest based on their values, how to discern if there's a trade-off between the two. And many people think one is important, the other is important, and both are important, right? Um, and what we're trying to do because a lot of the conversation, as I experienced it, as somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about materiality, and we wrote a paper, actually, it's, it's a chapter in the 2013 paper that I mentioned, and we've made it a separate book or a separate booklet on, it was on financial materiality. Um, there's a lot of people talking about materiality and how that actually gets interpreted and worked through the reporting system which is a, a, also a legal system in most jurisdictions and some more aggressive than others, um, that the concept of double materiality is going to sort of, I think we're going to have to see some of this information. And I think we're going to then have to decide what information is truly about value relevant and which one is values relevant. Because I sort of feel like in the whole context of the sustainability information um, situation right now is that there's only so much more we're going to get by talking without doing and saying, right? Because the challenge is going to be like, I think when we get to 2024, 2025, when some of this information is first disclosed, investors are going to look at it and say, well, that didn't turn out like I thought, or mm, that did, right? And what does this information tell me, right? So a, a lot of it is very abstract right now. Um, and, and how it gets incorporated is very qualitative, right? 
And so I think this is a, this is, this is like, we're going to get this information and it's all going to be over, right? The standard setting takes at least a decade for things, right? So we can hurry up and we can issue a standard and then we can hurry up and we can publish information. And then we're going to end up in a situation where we are like, okay, well, let's take a step back. What if this turned out to be useful? What are the challenges of compiling it? What's relevant? What's reliable? How much do we care about reliability? Some of the auditors freak out when I say, well, we care more about relevance than reliability, right? They're like, oh, you know? Um, and I said, well, there's a trade-off, right? Something that's perfectly reliable, like amortized costs, is highly irrelevant to us, right? Because it's what somebody paid for something in the past. It's not what is worth today. And we're trying to value the business today, working in the future, yeah? So I think that, I think that there is, and there's, there's a lot of soft language around the double materiality concept, right? So if you listen to some of the current conversation um, from the ISSB, there's almost like, there's like financial materiality, but then if you have an impact on the, outs, uh, the external world, that externality is going to come back to you. And so it ultimately it bears on um, financial materiality. But I don't think we've, I don't think everybody has got enough information to take the conversation further. That's how I experience it right now. And then we need to see some data and we need to say, what does this do for me? And is it mostly this or mostly that or a combination of both? In my view, there's going to be a whole flurry of activity after 2025 on this. I've always believed in relevance more than reliability because that's what investigators is, is putting probabilistic outcomes around uncertain futures. And so, Ab you know, absolutely. So, Absolutely. You know, and that's necessarily something that um, accountants are necessarily, I mean, I'm both um, a CFA and a CPA, so they're not necessarily as comfortable with that. But it, it, one of my pet peeves, and we were just having a conversation yesterday, and it's like, oh, investors are going to be confused by that. And I'm like, you know, investors are the ones putting money to work. They're taking the risk, right? They're the ones who are saying, I need the information because I'm not just putting my professional reputation and I might have liability. I'm going to lose money or I'm going to make money, right? So my scorecard's going to happen maybe a little bit faster than yours. That's a point of frustration for me in, in that when I deal with both sets of people, they're, so, you know, they're different personalities because one's more about what the rules are and whatever, and one's more about what the numbers actually mean. Um, and what and one looks more to the past and one looks more to the future. So sort of combining those languages is really challenging. But investors are smart, right? Those who are truly doing fundamental analysis, they're smart. And they're really looking at some of these risks. They're looking at the sustainability risks. They're thinking about them, but they may just not have the quantitative or necessarily all the qualitative information that they need to make those um, uh, decisions, those relevant decisions. I'm going to give you a minute or two to relieve your frustration because I'm going to propose <laughs> a magic world. Oh, okay. Oh, Sandra Peters is the accounting disclosure and assurance czar of the world. All the world's legislators and all the world's regulators in every jurisdiction of the world want to listen to you. What reforms do you suggest? We need to address some of the really important challenges related to intangibles starting with disclosure, right? And I think that we also need to raise a group of accountants who are uncomfortable or who are comfortable with uncertainty. And I'm having more because I was a, 
an insurance partner and a controller of an insurance company, I like to joke, we know the numbers are wrong. The question is, how wrong are they? So we need to, in some way, make the space for uncertainty and measurement and sensitivity analysis, right? And I think this isn't just important for investors. I think it's vitally important for the auditing profession. The auditing profession many times thinks that um, investors are beating up on them. And I'm like, no, 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 we're on your side. We hire you. We want you to do good work and we want to pay you for doing good work, right? People are always shocked when I say that. I'm like, we're willing to pay for good work. But one of the things that's going to happen in the auditing profession is if you have accounting standards that are just about processing historical transactions, that can be a lot of that can be done by machines. We want your view on judgments and estimates and uncertainty and fair presentation, if you will, right? But that's going to require that that you tell us a little bit more. The challenge for investors in valuing the audit is they don't get any information, right? It's like it, it's somebody said, um, and in something, it's a credence good, and I was like, oh. You know, I, I don't think I knew that concept again. I think I said at the beginning, economics was not my strong suit. Um, I used to call it my GPA deflator. But much of the work that can be done by accountants will be done by computers. And we need their view on judgments and estimates and uncertainties and the like around that. And we need greater transparency about what they find in that regard, right? So the SEC Investor Advisory Committee that I was on, we had an audit committee presentation recently, and it was really quite good. And we're very appreciative of the people who came and spoke. But audit committee reports say all the things we did, nothing that what we found, right? Same with the audit report. These are the things in the critical audit matters. These are the things we did, but not what we found. On the sustainability front, I think that it's really integration of this information um, between the financial statements and um, what's outside the financial statements. And I think you're going to see in the ISSB's consultation response or responses to their agenda consultation, um, others saying that. So, you know, one of our comments to the SEC on the SEC climate proposal was that, hey, these effects that you have in the financial statements, we absolutely think showing the effects in the financial statements is important, but you're using a whole lot of terms outside of the financial statements. Okay. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. Okay. What's you right now? What are you passionate about at the moment? The thing I love about my job that I, that I, I jokingly told someone we were doing a future finance project is that my old job was about memorializing the past and all the work papers I've ever created have been burnt up. And now what I get to do is shape what the future looks like. And I really like and enjoy that and connecting the dots and sitting between um, two professions that I think are really, really important to the capital markets, which is the accounting profession and the profession of professional investors and analysts. So those are the things that there's just so many interesting things going on that there's just not enough time um, to do them all, you know? All the things on um, crypto and all of the assets around that, are those business models legal? All of those um, sorts of things are really interesting deployments of technology. I like to joke with some of, some of my investment colleagues that I've never seen so many investors be so excited about a ledger when it comes to Bitcoin, right? Just it's a, a little tongue-in-cheek joke with them. But um, it's all those sort of things that are, there's so many things 
that are going to need to be on the precipice of change as your sort of earlier question um, focused on. It's just where do you pick your spots and how do you, where do you dig in? How do you relax? I ride my bike and I go spinning. I'm not a like sit still kind of person. So I am, I'm a big, I'm, I'm here in Omaha and they have these great trails and I've ridden my bike 20 or 30 miles each day in the early in the morning. So it's great. What music do you listen to? <laughs> um, they, I listen to country music. And growing up in Nebraska, I hated country music. My dad used to reprogram my car with all country music stations. And then I lived in Texas and I learned to like it. And I just went to CMA Fest. And so that was very fun. Four nights of, of uh, country music. And I love country music because of the stories, right? It's a story about people's lives. You know, I'm fascinated by Jelly Roll right now. And I don't know a lot of people who aren't in the country um, music venue who know who Jelly Roll is. But he's this big guy who was in prison and, and he's come out and he has these great songs. And he's this huge, really scary looking guy with tattoos on his face. The most beautiful music comes out of them, right? And it's, it's just, I really, I really love him. I love, um, I love him. I love Luke Combs. I'm, you know. Tim Raw was at Country Music Fest. I've always been a Tim Raw fan. So, what are you reading right now? I'm not reading anything other than other than account of proposed uh, comment letters. I'm I'm afraid. So that sounds kind of boring. I was looking at someone a, a professor's recent reading list, and I'm like, this is impressive about how much he reads every year. He's a professor at Harvard and he publishes all the books he reads for fun. And I'm like, wow, this is impressive. I need to be more like that. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? I want to go back post-COVID to uh, the Peloponnese in Greece. We went to Greece a couple before, right before COVID. And we wanted to go to Santorini. So we left this um, place, this resort we had been in the Peloponnese. And we didn't go all the way around the Peloponnese to sort of understand all of the history of Greece and civilization. And I want to go back um, to the Peloponnese. Last question. If you can magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? Well, I don't know. That's a good one. Life is short. I don't know. (laughs) There's so much to do. There's so much to get up and be excited about and to work on and think about what the future is about. Thanks, much. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, Sandra Peters of the CFA Institute. As you can hear, Sandra is uh, incredibly informed about the informational needs of investors, disclosure regs, the various uh, regulators around the world. and. Uh, we're all trying to put band-aids on a somewhat broken or misaligned system. She does it better than most. Thanks, Cindy. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was fun. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.